to get to be with you today. Thanks so much for letting me do that. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 20. That's where we're going to be today. We'll read it here in just a few minutes. But we've been in a series called Rooted, and really we're in the second edition of Rooted. We're going through the book of Acts. We're just kind of seeing the way God has worked out His mission in us and through us over the course of these last few months. And so I'm excited that we get to look at that today. And last Sunday... Chris began what really is kind of a two-part mini-series out of this passage, Acts chapter 20. Um, and, and the first part of it, well really all of it, is focused on Paul's last words to the church at Ephesus. Paul's been in Macedonia and he's been kind of traveling around telling people about Jesus and starting churches. And now he's pointed his face towards Jerusalem. And he has every reason to believe that he won't ever see the people in Ephesus again. He has no plans to return. So he sails a little past Ephesus, stops at a place uh, called Miletus, and he calls the the leaders at the church at Ephesus to come see him, and he's really kind of giving his last charge, his last statement, or his kind of his last few words that they'll be able to ever hear from him personally, kind of face to face. And last week, one of the things Chris challenged us to do was to consider what our last words might be. What What might your last words be? Um, have you thought about that a little bit? I hope you have. I, if you're like me, I've thought about it a little bit, and I, I, I keep coming, going back and forth. Do I want my last words to be just exceptionally profound, like deep words of wisdom someone would want to put in a fortune cookie someday? Or, or would, I, would I really just rather just be really, really funny? <laughs> would I just want to say something crazy and awful? I don't know which one it is. So which one is it for you? I don't know. Do you want to be profound, or do you want to be funny? Do you want to, uh, I hope it's not, oops, I slipped on the soap. I hope that's not it, because that would be terribly embarrassing. It made me wonder what maybe some famous last words of famous people might have been, and so I did a little research, and I'll show you this. Some of you know who Jimi Hendrix is, Jimi Hendrix's famous rock and roll star. Yeah, these are his famous last words. On the nightstand next to him, uh, where he was found after he had passed away, was a poem that was written, and they believe that these were the last words of that poem. The story of life is quicker than the blink of an eye. The story of love is hello and goodbye until we meet again. I don't know if anybody ever wrote that into a song and he didn't have time to do that, but those were on a poem that was on his nightstand. It's his famous last words. Charlie Chaplin was a comedian. He was a comic. And uh, yeah, he was, he was Catholic and the Catholic priest gave his last rites and the last rites say, and may God have mercy on your soul. And his last words were, why not? After it all, it belongs to him. <laughs> that was his last words. That, that, that's, that's what he said. Uh, Socrates, uh, don't show the picture yet. Socrates, he died by ingesting poison. So his famous last words were this. I, I drink what? <laughs> what did I drink? That's terrible. And then I grew up in Oklahoma, so I've kind of got redneck flowing through my veins. And as I was doing research, just statistically in Oklahoma, it seems like that the famous last words of many Oklahomans are, uh, are this. Hold my beer. <laughs> it just seems to be like, There's a lot of famous last words out there. So what are your famous last words going to be? What are your famous last words going to be? Are they going to be something profound or something funny? Here's what we're going to see in the passage that we're about to read. It's Acts chapter 20, and in just a moment, uh, we, we have this practice here that we like to do. We like to honor the reading of God's Word, to recognize that this is a book of history. The, there are letters inside this book, letters from one person to another or from one person to a group of people. There's, there, um, there's poetry in this book. So this book is an eclectic book of a lot of different things, but whether you're reading poetry or law or or history, or letters, 
All of this book is written and inspired by God himself. And so when we read it together, we like to stand together in honor of reading that. And when I'm finished reading it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, praise be to God, because we just want to honor that. But before we read the passage, Acts chapter 20, I just want us to recognize what Paul is doing here. Paul, in his last words... He really wants the church at Ephesus, and he really wants us to know something very specific. He wants to protect us from something, and he wants us to be able to prove something within ourselves. And he's trying to give us, through these last words, some things that we ought to be able to look for in the leaders that we follow. But he's also trying to give us some things that we ought to look for in our own life as followers that we ought to become. Does that make sense? He's trying to show us some things. that th- These are some qualities or characteristics of leaders that are worth following, but these are also some qualities and some characteristics of a follower that's, that's worth being. So we're going to see that. And so as we read this passage right now, I want you to look for those things, the qualities of character that might help you recognize a leader that's worth following and a follower that's worth becoming or a follower worth being, a follower worth imitating. So Acts chapter 20 is where we are. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 8, or excuse me, 28, if you would stand with me in honor of reading God's word. Beginning in verse 28, it says this, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there's that word, overseer, leader, follower, and leader. Those are the two ideas there. Uh, To which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You can be seated. Here's what we're going to see today. This is really the major theme that, that, that this passage really develops for us. And I hope it's something that we can capture inside our own lives. Because I believe as believers, as individuals, as people who are just living our lives, whatever your career may be or, or wherever you go to school, I believe if we can capture this idea that it will really transform the way we live our lives. It'll transform who we follow, but it'll also transform the way we follow and the way we use our influence in order to to help other people come to know Christ or really just to use our influence at all. And here's the principle. It's this. A leader worth following is a follower worth being. A leader worth following is a follower worth becoming or a follower worth imitating. 
And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going I'm to give you kind of every major point that I want you to see inside this passage. And we're going to come back after I give them all to you. I'm going to come back and kind of unpack them all a little bit and, and help you understand kind of the context of it and what I mean when I say that. So here's the thing about a, a leader worth following. There are three defining characteristics of a leader that's worth following. A leader that's worth following, first off, is led by the Spirit. They're led by the Spirit with compassion for the church and with a passion for Christ. A leader worth following is led by the Spirit with compassion for the church, or, by, or with compassion for the church by the passion of Christ. Now, I know when I say that, you're going, great, I'm not sure I know what any of those things look like. What is that? I mean, I get it. Those are church words, and I understand all those. I understand all the words that are coming out of your mouth, but I don't know if I get what you mean when you say that, and that's okay. When I read this passage, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 28, that's actually what I see there in verse 28, is that Paul is saying to them, I want you to understand that a leader worth following is led by the Spirit with compassion for the church by the passion of Christ. And then he does exactly the same thing that I'm about to do. Let me give you bullet points of what indicators, what characteristics to look for to help you know that this is a leader that is led by the Spirit with compassion for the church, by the compassion or by the passion of Christ. These are some characteristics, some qualities, or some indicators that you can look for. And these characteristics, these indicators... These qualities are the kinds of things that, that really cause you to become a follower worth being or a follower worth imitating. So a leader worth following is led by the Spirit with compassion for the church, by the compassion of Christ. And a follower worth being is this. A follower worth being protects relationships. That's one of the things that a follower worth being, a follower worth imitating, or a leader worth following. They protect relationships. They live the example they live the example. The words they use and the actions they choose, they, they line up. Those, those two things go together. They protect relationships. They live the example. They work faithfully. They're diligent with the works of their hands. They're not lazy. They're creative. They're the kinds of people that you want on your team. They're the kinds of people you want on your team because you know you can trust that when they say it's going to get done, it's going to get done. They work faithfully. They give generously. A follower worth being, a leader worth following, a follower worth imitating, they give, they give generously. They, they hold their stuff lightly, not because stuff should be misused and abused, but because God's given us that stuff to be used as a tool for His glory and for the benefit of others, and really for the benefit of you too. So they give, they understand that, and they hold it in the right view, and so they, they're able to give generously, and they're also able to sacrifice willingly. They sacrifice willingly. You see all of that in this passage, beginning in verse really 30, all the way through the end in verse 38. You can kind of go through there and see that each time that a, a leader worth following is led by the Spirit with compassion for the church by the, by the passion of Christ. And a follower worth being, well, first off, leaders worth following are made up of followers worth being. So there are these indicators, these characteristics, these qualities that you can look for in an individual or more specifically in yourself that will help you be the kind of person that God intends for us to be. We, we protect relationships. We live the example. We work faithfully. We give generously. And then we sacrifice willingly. Those are the things that are the indicators that we look for. Now, why is Paul telling us that this is so important for us to be able to identify? Well, he says it right there. Actually, if you read on verse, uh, verse 29, uh, it says, For I know this, that after my departure... 
Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. You see, here was a concern that Paul had, and it's a legitimate concern. We'll see it in this location. We'll see it at the Calvary campus. We see it in our nation today, that there are, there are things that are, that are coming against us from the outside trying to affect us on the inside. There are attacks that come. There are deceptions that come. There are, there are, there are all kinds of things that, that come from the outside trying to affect us on the inside, trying to change who we are, what we think, and specifically what we believe about this book, about the Bible, and about who God is. There are enemies outside who are trying to affect us on the inside. But he also says that we need to not be careful of the savage wolves simply that come from the outside trying to affect us on the inside. We need to be careful from the enemies that rise up from within. Those who would really if we were honest, with the best of intentions, lead us all the wrong directions. Have you ever met anyone like that? Maybe they're outside our church. Maybe they're outside the circle of your life. Maybe they're inside the church. Maybe they're inside the circle of your life. Maybe you work with them. Maybe you go to school with them. But there are people who both outside and inside, really, with the best of intentions, will lead us in all the wrong directions if we're not careful. And so what Paul is trying to do today is he's trying to give us a measurement. He's trying to give us a way that we can, with these indicators, with these ideas, be able to recognize the truth when we hear it and when we see it so that we can recognize a leader worth following, so that we can become a follower worth imitating, a follower worth being, so that we can see those kinds of things. I have a friend who's a police officer, and you've probably heard me or Chris tell a story like this before, but, but heresy is one of those things that sometimes is difficult to identify. So instead of identifying the heretic, instead of identifying the falsehood or the lie, it's far easier to identify the deception or to identify the lie if I recognize the real thing when I see it the first time. Does that make sense? It's far easier to recognize the truth when I'm intimately aware of the truth than it is for me to, to, to try to outline every possible lie or every possible deception or every possible falsehood or good intention that might lead you the wrong direction. It's, it's far easier if I just know the truth and can recognize the truth. The story is we both have a friend that's a police officer, and that police officer will bring business owners together, and he'll say, I want to help you understand how to identify counterfeit money. That's my job. I'm going to teach you how to identify counterfeit money. And so he'll tell, he'll start, he starts the day by saying, all day long, we're going to look at money. That's what we're going to look at. I'm not going to show you one counterfeit bill because it doesn't help you to look at counterfeit bills. The easiest way to identify a counterfeit bill is to know what the real bill looks like. So they spend all day long looking at the $20 bills and $100 bills and $5 and $10. Bills and, and these are the indicators. These are the qualities. These are the characteristics inside these bills that lets you know for sure that this is a real $20 bill. And if you look at it long enough, if you study it close enough, then as soon as someone gives you what's counterfeit, well, you haven't had to have a class on that because you know the real thing. Because you've seen the real deal. And you can immediately hold it up and go, yeah, you're not paying with that. Uh, you're going to have to get something else from your wife, right? You know, that's, uh, that's, that's how that's going to work. And so, and so because you know the real thing, because you can identify the real thing, you can actually... Use the, use the money the, the right way. That's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to protect us from those savage wolves, and he's trying to protect us from those who, with the best of intention, would lead us all the wrong directions. He's trying to get us there by helping us see 
what the real deal actually looks like. So let's think about a follower worth being, a follower worth becoming, a follower worth imitating for just a minute. That first idea that he, that he shares with us is that, that a follower worth being, a leader worth following, protects relationships. You know, I think that a healthy relationship may be the most difficult, most significant thing that you ever learn to do. That may be the most difficult, most significant thing that we try to figure out. And I think it's because our relationships today are so disposable. Have you ever noticed that? I get crossways at someone with someone at work and I can just go get another job. I get crossways with someone in the church and I can go find another church. I get crossways with someone in my family and I can just go down the street and get another family, right? We can, we can do that these days. And it happens a lot. And sometimes it's, sometimes it's silly, the things we fight over, but sometimes it's tragic, the things that we fight over. And, and a, a leader worth following, a follower worth being, this is an indicator that you can look for in your own life and in the lives of others. We ought to be rabid. We ought to be passionate about protecting our relationships with one another. We ought to recognize that our relationships are so valuable. We ought to put such a priority on relationships in this place and in our own lives that we're willing to forgive when someone has wronged us. Isn't that the hard part of relationships? When someone has treated you wrongly or treated you poorly, for you to value the relationship enough to be willing to forgive in that moment? That's, that's the hard part. Not in the party, not in the fun times, not in the good times, not when everybody agrees. It's when we disagree. And we're trying to figure out how can we get along when we disagree so much? Well, forgiveness is the starting point for that. When someone has wronged you, can you forgive? Do you value that relationship? Are you willing to protect that relationship enough to forgive when you've been wronged? Are you willing to protect that relationship enough? Do you value the relationship enough that, well, you're willing to confess when you've, when you've been wronged, when you've hurt someone? When you've unintentionally deceived someone or when you've intentionally hurt someone, are you big enough? Do you value the relationship enough? Do you protect the relationship enough to be willing to go to someone and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. You see, I think that's why a healthy relationship may be the most difficult, most significant thing we ever figure out. Our relationships today seem to be so disposable because forgiveness is not easy. Repentance is complicated sometimes. doesn't have to be, but we make it so because we don't, we don't really want to protect those relationships, do we? Do we have the kinds of relationships with people, do we have the kinds of relationships with people where if I'm about to walk off a cliff, that you would be friends with me enough to say, stop it, don't go there. You're about to walk off a cliff. Do I have the kind of friendship or relationship with you that I would be willing to say, stop it, wait, don't go there. That decision you're about to make is going to ruin your family. It's going to destroy your marriage. It's going to change the nature of your relationship with your kids forever. Stop. Don't go there. Do we have those kinds of relationships? You see, a leader worth following and a follower worth being or becoming is the kind of leader, the kind of follower that protects relationships. Not only do we protect relationships, but we also, we also live the example. We live the example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says one of the most remarkable things that I think any person could say to anybody else. It's such a simple verse to memorize, but such a hard verse to live. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Could you imagine being bold enough could you imagine being courageous enough to be able to honestly look someone in the eyes and say, hey, if you'll just do what I'm doing, you'll be doing what Jesus did. Could you imagine living your life that way? 
Imitate me as I imitate Christ. These are indicators we can look for in the life of someone, a follower worth becoming. This is something that you can become. You can be that person who with honesty could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You could be that person. You could be that person that protects relationships. And as you become that person, you become a follower or a leader worth following. You know, they set the example in the way they live. They protect relationships. They work faithfully. And I'm so proud of the people of our church because so many of you serve so diligently. You serve so faithfully. There's so many people here. I can, I can speak an idea, and it can be just an idea. And before I have any opportunity to even refine the idea, there's somebody already trying to bring it to life because you all work so faithfully, and I'm so grateful for that. Are you a hard worker? Are you someone who works faithfully? Are you someone who gives generously? You know, giving, when you start talking about that in the life of a church, everybody always assumes that you mean a church. And so certainly you could give here. I believe that here is a great target for your gifts. But I don't mean just to church. Are you a generous person? Have you developed the strength and the muscle of generosity in your life so that you can hold your stuff lightly and willingly help someone in need, whether they be a friend, a family member, a colleague, a coworker, someone that you don't even know? Are you, have you managed your finances in a way that you have the ability, if God speaks or if the opportunity presents itself, you can go, I can fix that. That's easy. Here you go. See, they give generously because what's it say? It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And we're in that season of generosity right now where people are thinking about ways to give. Maybe we could extend the season beyond Christmas and beyond Thanksgiving. You know, inside this church, it's remarkable to see what happens. There are millions of dollars that people give here every year, and those millions of dollars are redistributed. They go out into our community to help people in a million different ways, and I'm so grateful and so thankful for a church like this. You all are so generous, and you hear me say it on a regular basis during our services that I'm thankful for your generosity, but there's some truth behind the numbers that we ought to recognize. And that's that of all the people who call this place their church home, 16% of those people who call this place home are the ones who give all of that money. So everything we do financially here is supported by less than one out of five people financially. So I think that's interesting. I think that tells me something. It tells me that we as a church together We are a generous people doing a good work together. But it tells me also that we as individuals, we could do better. It's really as simple as that. Whether your target is the church or your target is somewhere else. As a church together, we are a generous people. But as individuals, we could do better. So how are you doing? How could you do better at living the example or protecting your relationships? How could you do better at working faithfully or giving giving? generously. And then finally, that last piece for a a follower worth being, these are indicators you ought to be looking for in your own life and in the lives of the people that you follow. Uh, they, They sacrifice willingly. They sacrifice willingly. I have two definitions of sacrifice that I like the most. Uh, one of them is uh, giving up something you love for something you love even more, right? Giving up something you love for something you love even more. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. You've given up sleep, You've been trying to eat dinner at a nice restaurant when your three-year-old reaches over and grabs the steak off your plate and gnaws a big piece out of it and then drops it on the floor. You've had that moment with your kids where they're eating your food, they're taking your money, they're, they're, they're they're costing you sleep, and you sacrifice all those things and you do it willingly because you love your kids more than you love sleep or you love your kids more than you love your dinner or you love your kids because you give up something you love 
for something you love even more. That's one definition of sacrifice. But another definition of sacrifice that I really appreciate, that I really like, it's my favorite actually, is this one. Real sacrifice is giving more than you think you can afford and trusting God to provide. Real sacrifice. It's giving more than you think you can afford and trusting God to provide. And and in the history of Israel, there's some beautiful pictures of this, specifically with Abraham and Isaac. You know, Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And as an old man, God said to him, I'm going to bless you. Here's my promise. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. Your, your people are going to be a nation of priests and priests of the nations. Through you, my grace is going to affect this entire world. And Abraham said, okay, great. That's awesome. But he was old and he didn't have any kids. God, how are you possibly going to keep this promise? And ultimately, God keeps his promise and gives him a son. The son's name is Isaac. That's my, that's my final son's middle name, Isaac. I named him after him in the Bible. And there's this moment where God looks at Abraham and says, I know I promised you to make you as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea. And I know I've only given you one son right now, but I need you to trust me. And here's, here's how I need you to trust me. I need you to sacrifice your one and only son. I need you to sacrifice him. Now, we're not talking about some kind of mealy mouth sacrifice. We're not talking about, oh, don't spend time with him because you've got to go to work more. We're talking about the kind of sacrifice where he took Isaac up on a mountain, tied him to a rock, and had a knife that he was going to use to drive through his heart. Interesting about Abraham, God says, sacrifice your one and only son. Sacrifice the son of promise. And Abraham never hesitates. He simply says, God, that's way more than I think you, than I can afford, but I trust you to provide. And so, Abraham was obedient, and he, he's willing to sacrifice more than he thinks he could possibly afford, and he takes the son of promise up on that hill, he holds the knife up over his son, and God stops him, and God says, you've passed the test. Let me show you. Look, I've provided for you a ram right over here, and that ram became the sacrifice, and the son of, son of promise was spared because God can be trusted. Sacrifice, it's giving more than you think you can afford and trusting God to provide. I wonder, I wonder what you're holding on to a little too tight today. Not because the church needs it. Not because, well, maybe because your family needs it. Maybe they do need it. Maybe they do need you, need you to, to, to hold a little looser with some of the pieces of your life that you love, but you need to let it go for something you love even more. I wonder if you can Give more than you think you can afford with your life, with your time, with your talent, with all that you are. I wonder if you can do that and really trust God to provide. Because I can tell you in my own experience, personal experience, there's never been a moment that God has failed me. Never once, not one time. You see, those are indicators. Those are characters, uh, characteristics. Those are qualities of character that we can look for in our own life and in the lives of others that help us identify a leader worth following and that help us become a follower worth being or becoming a, a follower worth imitating. But here's one of my challenges. When I take a look at a list like that, I start thinking, I know some really good people. I know some really good people, and they, they do many of those things. They're generous, and they're hard workers, and they're sacrificial, and they're giving. And the, Man, they're a great example to follow but remember how I said savage wolves, they can come from outside or they can come from the inside. And with the best of intentions, they can lead us all the wrong directions. Remember how I said that? 
you can find someone that meets all of those characters and all of those qualities of, all those qualities of characters and that have all those characteristics in their life. All those indicators can be present and with the best of intentions, they can lead you in the worst of directions. It can happen. So what's the difference? What's the difference in this passage of Scripture for Paul? What's the difference? What's the thing that separates a good person from a godly person? What's the difference? uh, What what separates a person who's making a decent choice, a, a morally decent choice, what separates them from someone who is making a wise, eternal kind of decision? What what separates them? Well, it's those first three things we talked about. A leader worth following is led by the Spirit with compassion for the church by the passion of Christ. That's the thing that separates us. You can live a great moral life and end up in all the wrong places. You can live an incredibly intelligent life and be terribly, terribly dissatisfied. Actually, after the first of the year, we're going to begin a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, and Solomon was called the wisest person to ever live. He writes the book of Ecclesiastes and he comes to this conclusion at the beginning of the book to say vanity of vanities, everything's vanity, everything is self-centeredness plus hopelessness. That's what vanity is. He says it over and over and over again. You can be intelligent, you can be wise, you can be successful, you can be wealthy, you can be all of these things and you can meet all those qualities of character, all those indicators and be completely miserable. What is it? What's the thing that separates a leader worth following and a follower worth becoming. What what takes those and transforms those into something eternal? Well, first, a leader worth following is led by the Spirit. You see, I have this problem in me, and it's that I'm sinful. I like to sin. (laughs) If you were honest, you'd say that you do too. It's, It's part of my nature. I have this appetite for things that are wrong. I give in to temptation. And I do it, sometimes I do it against my will because I'm trying so hard, but sometimes I do it because I just like it. And if you were honest, you would say that that's true for you too. But God has made this incredible way of grace and of faith available to us. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect and spotless, a sinless life. And that when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he created this possibility for an incredible exchange where the sin nature that's in me, the appetite that I have for sin, he's created a way for Jesus to remove that appetite, to take the punishment and the penalty of my sin, to take it from my life and then to replace it with his righteousness. It's like he's taken my hunger and thirst for temptation and replaced it with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And that's exactly what he can do for you. Those things and all of your intelligence and all of your success that still lead you to depression, that still lead you to anguish, that still lead you to, de- to, to misery, that still lead you to those moments where you go, I still don't know, I don't know why I'm, I don't know why I'm not happy. I've got all the right stuff, and I'm with all the right people. I've, I've, I've changed my family three or four times, and I'm still not happy. Why am I not? Well, maybe it's because you're not being led by the Spirit. Maybe the hunger and thirst you have for your own selfishness has not yet been replaced with a hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the book of Galatians, it's a letter from Paul to a church in Galatia. He says this about the Spirit. He says, those who are led by the Spirit won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Actually, it's right there. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Each moment in the Spirit, take one step forward. And when you face temptation, take one step away from the temptation. 
And when you see a wise choice that would be God-honoring, take one choice closer to that. Those who walk in the Spirit, they don't obey the lust of the flesh. Now, when we say the word lust, we're automatically kind of, we automatically go towards something sexual, but lust could be our ambitions out of control. Lust could be our self out of control. It could be our appetites out of control. It could be our money out of control. It could be any of those things. It's any of those moments in our life where we've got a God-given need and we're trying to meet it in a God-forsaken way. And so when we walk in the Spirit, we don't have to obey the lusts of the flesh. Here's a prayer that I pray for my kids and for me. Here's a prayer that I pray for our church. God, would you teach me? Would you teach me to love without lust? In my relationships, if I'm going to protect a relationship, could you teach me to love without lust? Isn't that one of the biggest problems our married couples and even our single couples face today? Somehow in our culture, we've gotten it in our mind that you can't possibly be friends. You can't possibly have a loving relationship with someone without it somehow turning into something sexual. Isn't that something our culture's done? That somehow every relationship, if it's a really loving relationship, ends in something sexual? God, can you teach me to love without lust? Haven't we lost something when we're unable to have deep, significant, and meaningful relationships with people? without something physical involved. God has something far better in mind for us. My wife is the queen of my heart, and I want her above everyone else and everything else to know that I choose her. And I also want us both to have deep, significant, and meaningful relationships with other people. Not the kinds of friendships that lead us down a wrong path with all the right intentions going all the wrong directions. No, not like that but the kind of relationships that have healthy boundaries, but healthy boundaries based on love. Healthy boundaries based on this idea that God wants something for all of us that's bigger than us. And so there's this way I can pray, God, it's not in me on my own. It's not in me on my own to not have this appetite for what's wrong. So help me to learn. Help my family to learn. Help my friends to learn. Help this church to learn. To love without lust. Help us to do that so that we can have friendships that are deep, meaningful, and significant. With compassion for the church. With compassion for the church is this idea that you and I, together, we are beautifully broken people that God is remaking into the image of Christ. That's what happens every day in rooms just like this. That God is taking beautifully broken people and He's attempting to remake us into the image of of Christ. Now here's one of the challenges when it comes to those relationships in a room like this. We're we're looking at the backs of heads. We're sitting in lines. We're sitting in rows like this and it's great. I love that we get to talk about God's word together and we get to sing his praises. We're going to get to sing together in in just a moment in response to what we've heard today from God's word. But in a place like this, it's perfectly easy for you to look at me and be and, and just appear to be fully engaged when in actuality in your heart you're completely unconscious. You're asleep and snoring like that kid on the front row over here. No, I'm just kidding. There's not really. But you're completely unconscious. You could, be, you could look at me like you're fully. And so, so it's so important, so important if we're going to protect relationships, if we're going to recognize that we need to have compassion for the church, that, that rooms like this are an incredible starting point. But how we work out those indicators in our life, how we work out this scripture, we do that in circles, in small groups. And there's a small group for everyone here where you have an opportunity to take a look at the Bible and say, okay, I know what they said today, but I have no idea how to actually do that in my job. 
I mean, can you imagine in my career what he talked about? I don't know how I can work that out. Together as friends. Together as friends who are beautifully broken people being remade in the image of Christ. Together you can build these lasting friendships that are deep, that are significant, that are meaningful, and that are based on that prayer for love, not for lust. That's compassion for the church. We ought to be building that in our lives, in one another's lives. And finally, that last piece, by the passion, by the passion of Christ. What is the passion of Christ? Well, look, look at it with me. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. You see what Paul's doing? He makes this commendation, this recommendation, that they would take a look at this word, the word of God, that they would believe it and they would live by it. This is the word of his grace, and this word is able to build you up, and what does it do? It gives you an inheritance among those who are being sanctified. You know where that inheritance comes from? (laughs) You have a brother who secured your salvation on the cross at Calvary. That sin nature that causes, well, that spoils all of our friendships and all of our relationships, that keeps us from being a great example. That sin nature that causes us to want to be lazy and instead of work hard, that wants us to be selfish instead of generous, that wants us to be snide instead of sacrificial. He sent his one and only son, God did, the son of promise, Jesus Christ to take the punishment and penalty for your sin and mine and to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And today, you can be a leader worth following as you become a follower worth being. And it starts as we surrender, as we surrender to the one who has given us his grace and his mercy and his loving kindness, who valued our relationship so much, who protected our relationship with him so much that when we were still sinners, when we were completely wrong and completely offensive, God himself said, I'll take the punishment for your sin and I will give you forgiveness even before you ask. Surrender. And so today, that's the nature of our invitation. An invitation, it's an opportunity. In just a moment, I'm going to pray After we pray, we'll sing together and you'll have an opportunity to respond, not to me, but to God's word and to God himself. Will you be a follower worth being or imitating or will you be a leader worth following? Which one of those will you be? Maybe you need to pray at the altar. Maybe you need to pray at your seat. Maybe you need to place your faith in Christ and surrender to him. Maybe you just want to know more about what that means or what it means to be a member of this church. There's people who will be available down here. There'll be people in the the foyer who would love to talk with you about that. Just uh, during during this response time, say, I want to know more about what it means to place my faith in Christ. We'd love to talk with you more about that. Today, you have an opportunity and you have a choice. You can be a leader worth following. And it starts by being a follower worth becoming. Let's pray together.